to me, the world show is the elite of the elite. You go there because you want to compete against the best that there is. I want the people there to be the, the best that there are in the industry. And for me, when I go there and I know that everyone went, had to qualify, they had to beat so many people, they had to be in the top five so many times, that makes me feel good about laying down a good pattern. I think that that's the whole point of the world show. I'm not saying that you you have to go out there and be the winner to get your points, but you have to show enough to have won enough to be there. To me, that's what holds the world show as the elite, the top of the top. in on the rail at a jog please on the rail at a jog all right everyone we are back with another on the rail podcast episode today so this is exciting for us because a little while ago liz and i had a discussion and an idea to start these roundtable discussions on the podcast so our intent is to try and do these once per month and kind of discuss a hot button topic or hot button issue in the industry right now, but try to get like varying perspectives or more than one perspective because we don't want this to be like our agenda on anything for sure, but different viewpoints and sides and try and provide constructive criticism to things to just move the industry forward and also not ignore some of the issues that are currently going on. So with that being said, today's first roundtable discussion for, let's see, this will be the month of February, is going to be surrounding the AQHA World Show and whatever its current issues may or may not be and whatever improvements could or couldn't be made with it going forward. So me being the basically the paint girl here, I have defaulted to a bunch of other great (laughs) quarter horse people to provide input. And I'm just going to kind of moderate the discussion that we're getting ready to have. So we'll let everybody that's here with us today kind of introduce themselves and give a little background about what they do with AQHA, whether or not you compete at the world show and that thing. So everybody kind of has an idea of where you're coming back from. So we'll have Alexa, do you want to start first? Sure. Yeah. My name is Alexa Maxwell. My dad is a horse trainer. So I grew up in the industry attended multiple youth worlds and have since 2020 attended the AQHA Amateur World. And I attended this year as well. I have been involved with AQHA not only on the showing side, but on the planning side with the youth group. So it gives me kind of an insight into the things that go on when it comes to putting on these events. But ultimately showing is why my aspect of expertise on that. So thank you, Alexa. Bang, we can go next. Sure. Meg Pye, uh, amateur exhibitor. I have been showing AQHA since 2012. So it's been a, been a minute, not been in the industry like Alexa from a family perspective, but just a paying amateur exhibitor. I did show at the AQHA World Show last November, and I have since 2015 as an amateur exhibitor. I'm a financial sales executive. That's my, I guess, side hustle and how I pay for this. <laughs> That is like your your real job is your side hustle. That's perfect. (laughs) And Patty. 
That's funny, Meg, that we all look at it that way, right? (laughs) I'm Patty Bogash. Thanks for having me on. I live in Chicago. I am an all-around amateur, and I grew up on a small horse farm in Minnesota. I've started showing when I was nine years old, started with AQHA when I was 12. I have been competing at the AQHA World Show since 2015. And I really look forward to this because I think there's a lot of very positive things going on. And I think a lot of really good discussion that we can have as well as far as improvement. So we currently have three amateur gals with us and got one other person joining us and maybe another coming. So while he logs on, let's just touch on if you gals actually did all three of you go to the 2022 World Show? And yes, I did. And I know you can't see it, but Meg's video feed has her wonderful World Show trophy that she won. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I polish her daily. (laughs) (laughs) You don't sleep with it under your pillow still? Uh, No, I don't. I stopped that. It's a little while ago, actually, Patty, just a little while ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I went as well. I've gone the last few years and I, I did go in 2022 as well. Okay. So all three of you guys went into this past year's world show and well, briefly, since Preston now has joined us, Preston, do you want to kind of introduce yourself about what your involvement is in the quarter horse world, kind of your background and where you're coming from, just so people have an idea of what your background is? Yeah. So I came from pretty much a big time rodeo background for most of my life, Uh, competed professionally according to the AQHA standard in team roping. And then I have a girlfriend, Hannah, that has started showing the pleasure horses. So we kind of jumped in with both feet, bought a couple stud horses, bought an all-around horse, and I've really hit it hard this year. Go Went to all the major shows, NSBA, Congress, obviously the World Show, the Madness, all the big ones. And just really, honestly, more than anything, got our eyes opened up, especially for me, which I'm sure we'll dive into that a little bit more here in a bit. But it was definitely an eye-opening experience to say the least. So a rodeo guy turned pleasure horse owner. That's a big difference. (laughs) Big difference. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That could be a whole nother podcast, Jenna. I I really feel like that could be a whole hour's (laughs) worth conversation for sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So all four of you went to this past year's world show. And so just briefly, what was your overall impression of this past year's world show? For me, the past world show was very similar to the first time that they shoved select and novice classes all in. It seems very long and it seems very drawn out. For me, I was there for nine days and that's only because I didn't make the trail finals and I decided not to show my three-year-old or I would have been there 15 days and 15 days out of the office after just getting back two weeks prior from the Congress was just not possible and work and compete and have a family and be home. It just, for me, the schedule is just the hardest piece. And that's what I noticed again last year. And I said to myself, gosh, this is the same as the year prior and the year prior when they just try to shove everybody into one space. I mean, I I think I understand some of the reasoning behind it, but I also have got to think that there's a better way to host it without keeping people there for three weeks at a time and, you know, people showing the equitation the first day and then not showing for five days. And it's the same amateur division. That's wild. I just don't think that that's feasible for most people to be there for that long and sit around and not show your horse for five days because that's the way the schedule is. That's my two cents. 
Yeah, Meg, I think that's really good input. I showed two classes and I was lucky enough to make the finals in both. So I was there for a total of, I believe it was eight or nine days. I got there a day, you know, extra a couple days early. But my horse showed, now that he's a senior horse, showed in the senior trail and blessing in disguise, maybe that he didn't make it to the finals or Valerie would have been there with him. I want to say like 22 days total. It's a very long oh, wow. horse show. And I really do, personally, I love the select being a part of it. I think that that is an excellent thing, but they have to figure out how to leverage technology better. I think that there's some major downtime that doesn't have to be had. I think that there can be some scheduling improvements so that you can look at not only how do we get the classes to be more efficient, how do you get people enough time to prep, how do we make it beneficial for the horse and how do we not kill the exhibitors either? So there's definitely a lot from a scheduling perspective that can be looked at. Yeah, Patty, I'm, I'm with you on the senior trail because, you know, Katie Grossnickel, we haul their horses out there. My dad always has to show the senior trail and it's like the next to the last day. And then if you make the finals, then it's the exact last day of the world show. For me on the scheduling issue, there's not much that they're going to do for me considering I show so many events. I'm out there from the time that the ranch riding starts to the equitation, which I think we were out there for, like you said, I want to say 20 some days, but I think definitely the select has been a big eye opener for all of us. And I think it's great because the select world was really small. And I almost felt like when it was by itself, it was kind of sectioned off from everyone else. So I think it's really great that they're bringing them in and it gives us a little more time to maybe not have to haul all over the place coming from the trainer's point. Um, you know, those trainers were having to haul here and then there from the NSBA to the Congress to there. It was a lot. And I think it makes it a little easier on the select exhibitors to pay those bills as well as the amateurs when you're not having to foot the whole bill to go to the world show. But I think the scheduling, like Meg said, is really hard when it comes to the all around starting. Like you guys, you know, you showed the showmanship, I want to say on the 7th and the equitation didn't go till the 15th. And as a youth kid, we always did, like you did the prelims if you made the finals and the showmanship, it was always the next day. But in say the horsemanship, the, act, the trail, they only gave you a day off where I find that the amateur world, that's much different. Yeah, let's say, I think we did the horsemanship. I'm failing to remember the exact dates, but I think that we did the prelims on a Tuesday or Wednesday and then the finals didn't go until Saturday. So there were a number of days in between where they were just for me, because I only at the time did the two events, you know, a lot of downtime, a lot of, obviously I could work for the hotel, but a lot of time that I was there that I wasn't competing. Right. And I think I attended the discussion that they had there at the world show. And that was a big complaint. And, you know, being there at the world show, there were multiple days that we were done and that we weren't even showing at three and four o'clock, which there was plenty of time for us to put finals or extra prelims in there that could have been taken care of. Preston, was this your first world show? It was. It was the first time ever going. And, you know, we only had the one pleasure horse that showed in the level two and the level three pleasure. So it wasn't bad for us. I really, I enjoyed the schedule because I like to go eat dinner and hang out and do stuff. So it doesn't bother me. I could absolutely see if we would have taken her all around horse down there, how miserable it would have been just with everything drawn out. And like everybody else has alluded to, you know, the time off work and the schedule and everything else just makes it super, super tough. I think for the common person to be able to go to that horse show. 
And I'll add one thing on the flip side, one of the select exhibitors in our barn, I think that she had two different prelims on one day. I want to say it was the showmanship prelims on one day and then the equitation prelims on that same day. And then I believe it was a number of days off. So it was like a lot crammed into her at one point and then some days off and then the finals and so forth after that. But it seemed to be either one extreme or the other. Right. So I know there's no way to like make the perfect schedule for everybody. You know, we know how much goes into making schedules for shows, especially big shows. So where do you guys feel like is the fine line between getting enough in a day to where everybody feels like they're not just wasting time sitting around by having the whole afternoon free versus showing so late in the day that you're also getting out in the middle of the night all the time to ride because there's no other time to get in the pen. I mean, I feel like there has to kind of be a happy medium in there. And do you think this year was different than in years past? Or has that become an increasingly large problem with the world show that there's just more and more downtime? I think there's more and more downtime. The problem is because there's no one in the classes. I mean, you're having three and four in some of these classes at the AQHA World Show. I mean, they're probably blocking in. I got to imagine they do the schedule before the entries come in. So you're thinking, okay, you know, amateur performance geldings or, you know, amateur ranch riding or whatever. And they're thinking, okay, we're going to have X, Y, Z amount of people. And then the entries come in and there's six entered in the class. So that number one, no prelim. Number two, it takes you 30 minutes to hold a class where you had an hour and a half blocked out. So I got to think that the problem with the schedule is because the participation has become so small in some classes and other classes are still massive. Senior trail, the ranch riding has taken off crazy. It's amazing to watch. But the classes that have been large in the past have gotten so, so small that they've blocked out this time. And then, you know, you're done, as everyone has said, at three in the afternoon. And you're like, well, OK, you know, what are you going to do when we could have thrown in four or five more prelims and maybe cut the world show down by three days if they would have taken advantage of that time? But I think it's just the fact that there's so many small classes now that the time they blocked, they just don't need. And that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, I think you know, when they go to schedule these things, they're expecting to get, you know, 25 and 30 or two and three splits in these classes. And then there's no splits and there's no people showing up. But I think that, again, we can touch on in a little bit. But, you know, I think there's a reason for that, too. And I know Carl Stressman with what he did with the PRCA and with the USTRC. And I think I think he's going to take it in the right direction if the people, the pleasure horse people, will be receptive to what he's going to try to do. But I think it's going to be a huge challenge. The one thing I would add is the use of technology. seems like the use of technology could be utilized to help with scoring, to help with reviews. Obviously, there's reviews and finals. There's, you know, all the judges have to be on the same page with penalties and so forth. But it seems like there's a limited use amount of technology when it comes to scribing and when it comes to results. And there was a lot of downtime between when the performance would actually end and when either numbers would get called back or results would get called. And so that's where there's a lot of downtime that they could potentially address with the use of technology or with the use of looking at what that process is. Yeah, most definitely, Patty. I know in the working amateur rail, I sat in there for probably 10 minutes in the split before we ever got our callbacks. And what Meg talked about is, you know, having that time blocked out. I think on their end, it needs to be a scheduling look at. You need to go back like they do for the Congress. They go back and they look at those entries from previous years and make the schedule based around that. 
you know, let's look at the past few years. We've not had any level 300 saddle splits for the junior or the amateur for the amateur pleasure. And they've have those classes booked out as prelims. I mean, for the amateur hunter hack, we were supposed to have the prelims and we didn't have enough. So we went straight to the finals. That could have been a spot for another class. You know, the amateur pleasure prelims could have been a spot for another class. Like Meg said, that takes, you know, three or four days out of the world show if you're paying attention to how many are in those classes. So I know there's some chatter, you know, on the internet and maybe from the association's perspective, not sure if this is an official opinion by any means. You say, you know, like they drag out the schedule, then it's more time there. It's more money for the city, hotels, dinners, that type of thing. So what is your opinion on that type of thing as far as bringing money into the city versus the exhibitors and spectators being able to, you know, have a respectful amount of time there, I guess? I don't think they do that intentionally. I think that they are trying to do the best job that they can doesn't mean that they can't look at information or try to improve in certain areas, but I do think that they are trying to do the best job that they can for the exhibitors and the horses. Again, making sure that, you know, they're not killing you either trying to get in too many classes, both for the horse trainers and exhibitors. But I, you know, for me being a non-pro focusing on it, like I do, I don't see it as trying to drive the local economy so much because what is a few days difference going to make? You're still having this many people there. There's other events there. It's not something that, you know, it's it's not like moving in entirely into a, a new facility or something like that. I agree with Patty. I, I can't imagine that the pressure that they're under, you know, having to put on so many classes for so many people in that amount of time. But I feel like Meg as a financial advisor is probably going to agree with me on this. And I'm sure we're going to get into this later. If you lower the costs a little bit and make the schedule more exhibitor friendly, that money that you're wanting to get for the economy and for the local aspect is going to expand because more people are going to come. You're not going to force the you know, 500, 600 people that go now to pay so much money to try to help that. You're going to have 1,200 to 1,500 people that want to go because it's more affordable and that they can get the time off work to help fuel that. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think they had their time to shine there. And I think it ultimately goes to a lot of people down to the dollars and the cents. And I feel like that's where we're all missing out in the the pleasure side of the AQHA. I mean, and they mentioned a lot of it in that town hall meeting they had there, but there's no money. I mean, there's no money. I mean, you spend a, a fortune to go down there and, you know, like you spend, I mean, we probably spend eight or $10,000 just to get there. And then while you're down there and then you you win top three in a class and you get a check for a thousand dollars. I mean, that's a joke. I mean, and and I think the numbers could come back and do that. But what happens when those numbers come back is where I'm going with it is I think the AQHA had their time when the numbers were strong and at their top, but it didn't change anything and nobody said anything. So we've just kind of kept it the same. Right. Right. Even then going off of that, Preston, I think that the big problem is now is that those jackpots are pay-ins. I didn't do any of the pay-ins because in the amateur division, I mean, we, we call it sink or swim. You're swimming with 40 good ones, not anybody that's going to not pull punches. If you do not go to the world show thinking that you even slightly, I mean, they competed a long time. My horses do well. I won a lot of awards last year, but even then I said, you know what? I don't see spending another $300 for a class on a side chance that I'm going to make money back. 
as far as the economy goes, I would hope that AQHA, that is the least of their concerns. Their concern should be the AQHA, the members, the organization, the people that they are representing and we are supporting and paying their bills to do that. I mean, if they're concerned about, oh, we need to make OQHA a couple thousand dollars extra by dragging this out, their priorities are way mixed up. Right. And I know as, as a youth kid, my platform when I ran for office there was I feel like their focus, while amazing that they want to reach out to new members and bring new people in, they're forgetting the people that are paying the bills right now. I feel like that's a common theme right now going around. Jenna and I had a conversation ourselves the other day, just the vibe as a whole right now in our industry. It's not well. I just, I don't know the word that I want to put on it, but it's just not doing too hot at the moment. I think there's so many other industries that are really thriving and doing well in catering to the members and pressing to your point, the money and that sort of thing. And it's becoming very apparent, some opportunities within our industry that we can be focusing on. And, you know, at the end of the day, we didn't get here overnight. We're probably not going to get out of it overnight, but we do have, you know, some new leadership. We have individuals who are really focused on trying to turn things around. And, And I do think that you can both, appreciate those that have been with you for quite some time, as well as increase your incoming members. You know, I work in business development for a public accounting firm. So it's my job to bring in new clients. It's my job to bring in new prospects that we're going to talk to about how we can work with them. You know, it's really no different when you look at something like AQHA or any association for that matter, you're going to have a certain amount of turnover every year. So if you know what that turnover is, you know how many new members you need, how much you want to grow by every year, and what you have to do to really try to encourage people to not only join and become a part of our association, but also want to stay here. And what is it that's going to appease those that do it on a professional level? What, you know, from a non-pro perspective, you know, we work really, really hard to be able to do this as our hobby and to your point, Preston, you know, to walk out with a trophy and a thousand dollars, you know, it'd be nice if there's a little bit more money behind that. So it's multifaceted. It's multifaceted from a challenge or an issue perspective. And then it's multifaceted when you look at it from how do we turn things around and, and really continue to grow and drive. And I think they're on the right step. I really do. I think they're trying. But my fear is, is, is it too little too late? I mean, you look at all the other associations that have broke off from the AQHA and those competitors that we're missing out on at the world show is because they have their own association with their own finals for 50 times the amount of money and 50% less headache than what they deal with when they go to Oklahoma City to the world show. Well, the good news is, is that if they're doing payouts like that, you know, it's possible. We just got to figure it out. Right. And I agree. I mean, I really do think that they are trying to turn it around, that they're aware of these challenges that we're faced with and they're not blind to it and they're not trying to not address it. I think that, you know, they definitely are. And and I know this past year, everything to me seemed better than the year before, other than my dear point, the scheduling very much seemed the same. The office staff was very friendly. Those that were running the gates really wanted to help. You know, those that were running any of the ride the patterns, you know, they're always wonderful, but it was very encouraging. It seemed like they were very open and friendly. And I think that when you're at an elite horse show like that, having customer service is a really big aspect to it. 
And that was some of the feedback that I think they had from the year before that maybe they addressed or maybe that they focused on because, you know, as someone who has questions from time to time, just because I haven't been there before doesn't mean I don't have a question. You know, it really felt like that you weren't bothering them this year, that they really wanted you to have the information and be able to work with it. So I do want to talk on the fees and the jackpot fees and stuff in just a minute. But before we jump into that, with the entries being so low in some of the classes this year, I know like the amateur pleasure was very small, six or seven horses, I think. What do you all feel is the cause behind the low entries? And obviously, as I think as an industry perspective, the ranch stuff is growing leaps and bounds and that type of thing. But so more so world show specific, what is the issue with the entries in some of the classes? So I can touch base on that coming from the ranch world. So for me, the ranch riding is not, I wouldn't say less expensive. I mean, every event has its own costs, but I feel as though the economy on a ranch horse is, is it's not giving the vibe as I have to go spend $150,000 on a horse to go be competitive in the all around industry or the pleasure industry. You know, you can have an ex, my horse is an ex ringer that came from the NRHA Derby world that couldn't stop anymore that we started putting the ranch riding on. And that's now what he shows very successfully. I think that is why it's a major draw for people and why those numbers continue to grow and why we don't see so many numbers growing in the all around division. Because if you're going to those big shows and you're not consistently winning, and, and I don't blame them for not paying the money, when you look at that, you know, I think it, I, off the top of my head, I think it's like $300, 375 something like that. Entry fee, when you're not consistently winning every weekend, I don't blame them for not going. Now, if the entry fees were less, I could see, you know, taking that chance, especially if you're level two going out there, having the opportunity. It's great that they added that. I think it's a really good chance for people to get their feet wet if they maybe don't want to go jump in with the really seasoned amateurs like Patty and Meg and myself. But I think that they need to realize and I don't know how they're going to do this but I know that Patty bought her horse very young taught her horse I know Meg's had several that she's done the same with I did the same with mine you don't have to go buy that majorly expensive horse to go to the world show and be competitive but in the economy right now selling horses that is unfortunately what we've made it to be and I think also too the pattern stuff seems more fair in the eyes of a lot of exhibitors because in a pattern class, there's multiple point systems, there's multiple maneuvers, whether it trail, showmanship, horsemanship, ranch riding. I mean, there's a lot of things where you could be really good in the beginning and then you could fall to pieces at the end. And then, you know, you're not the winner today versus in the pleasure, in the hunter under saddle, in the classes where it's strictly, okay, I'm a judge and I happen to like that one versus that one. And if you're not winning to Alexa's point, it's hard to get around the people who always win because they just always win. And you can show up, you can buy the $200,000 horse and you still probably won't get around him. So that's just very discouraging for your normal person who wants to show, but doesn't want to pay $375 to enter and then the jackpot and then the NSBA to be seventh. And they might have a better horse, but they're not going to get around to the people who have a bigger name in the pleasure and the hunter under saddle that are always going to win because it's who they are. And that's and that's why I think the patterns still have held on to some sort of numbers, because, again, I feel like, you know, you could be really good one day and you could be the complete loser the next day. But in those in the rail classes, unless it's really limping, you're potentially going to be the winner all day. And that's very discouraging for someone who wants to get in there. 
I agree 150,000% with that. <laughs> and that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm glad you said it in a much more professional version <laughs> than what I probably would have been able to speak it. But I feel that's the same way. I feel like, you know, you can about write down for second and third in every class before they even trot down the center. And I think accountability is something else the AQHA should really strive for if they want to grow their numbers. You know, um, let's judge the horses, not who's on their back or whose barn they stand in. You know, it's interesting, though, too, that the Congress members are still so strong in the pleasure. So there's something about the world show. There, there's some piece of it that, you know, there's there's a portion of that that can be addressed that I think there's horses that go to the Congress and don't go to the world show. And is it because that barn doesn't go to the world show or, you know, those people aren't interested in the world show for what I do, the cost is about the same. So if you're looking at one is cheaper than the other, it's not really different from my perspective personally, but it could be for others. But I do think, you know, Meg, to your point with patterns, you can really strive to be within that group and you can do it with a horse that is a good partner versus solely a good mover. And I think that what is so hard about these rail classes is, you know, it's hard to get around and hard to get around those that are consistently winning. But then we also have to be looking at what is the pleasure horse industry really geared towards? Is it geared towards just that event? And if it's just that event, it's probably why it's getting smaller. If it's geared towards creating athletes that can go in and do other things, that's how we could potentially increase those numbers. I know the last two horses that I got as two-year-olds, they were pleasure horses that had a lot of talent, a lot of athletic ability. And were they going to be the next world champion as a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old? Probably not, but they were pretty cute at turning around. They could change leads. They could be competitive as a two-year-old and you could take them and do other things with them. So I think the pleasure horse industry really does have a very good place, especially for those that like to take horses and do the all around for them, you know, with them, but it's those lifelong pleasure horses that I think we're seeing fade away because people are more intrigued in doing the all around. They are more intrigued in doing a pattern class. And I know for my horse in particular, I love him in the pleasure, but I'm not going to add one more class to his day anymore. You know, we focus on so many other things. I'm not going to add one more class to his day. And maybe we're starting to see the results of that. So Kind of on a different note on perhaps maybe why the numbers are down as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but for this past world show, you still didn't have to qualify, right? You could pay a certain fee to be able to show. Is that correct? No, there was qualifying. Okay. You could qualify with your or you could have six shows. So the six show thing does bother me some coming from the ranch world and now doing the hunters. This is a big problem with why the hunters don't have numbers now is, you know, say you, you go to Florida, Kentucky, that's really about the only places that even hold over fence classes anymore. You're going up against multiple world champions, which is not a bad thing. But when you're someone starting out trying to get, you know, just your qualifying points, there's not enough people in your classes to get those points. That's why they're limiting their numbers because we're not offering the classes enough or we're not making it accessible to people to be able to show. I know that I'm on a thin line. I think that you should have to qualify in certain events. I mean, you know, we hold the showmanship, the horsemanship, all the all-around events, the pleasure, the hunt under saddle, the trail every single weekend. 
and they're they're big classes at our weekend shows. You know, we just in Cloverdale, I think Patty was there. There was, I think, 20 in the amateur horsemanship. There are plenty of people in there for you to be able to get qualified. But when you're looking at, you know, the pleasure driving, the ranch trail, the over fences, when you have to travel so far, I mean, people, you know, from Florida, they're fortunate to have those hunter events there. Whereas we don't hold a single hunter show in Ohio apart from the Congress. I have to travel to New York or Kentucky, which fortunately isn't that far, but that is where you're crushing your numbers because most people can't get that much time off work, nor can they afford to travel that far just for a side chance to get those points. So I think they need to evaluate the level of participation in certain classes and maybe waive those qualifying rules, which I'm sure would stir up a hornet's nest with the all-around people, but they have to look at it rationally and see that there are plenty of opportunities for us to get our points where for others there's not. I mean, how many places do you go that you know people are praying that they have just three in the pleasure driving to try to get their points? Millennial Cowgirl is a marketing and media company where we offer on-site content creation for the equine industry. Everything from amateurs, professional trainers, facilities, and product supply companies. Come to us for any of your media, marketing, and content creation needs. Find us on our website at millennialcowgirl.com or on Facebook and Instagram. So Meg, you're an all-around competitor. How do you feel about the qualifying? To me, the world show is the elite of the elite. You go there because you want to compete against the best that there is. I want the people there to be the, the best that there are in the industry. And for me, when I go there and I know that everyone went, had to qualify, they had to beat so many people, they had to be in the top five so many times, that makes me feel good about laying down a good pattern. I think that that's the whole point of the world show. I'm not saying that you you have to go out there and be the winner to get your points, but you have to show enough to have won enough to be there. To me, that's what holds the world show as the elite, the top of the top. I do think you need to qualify. However, I completely understand where Alexa's is coming from with the groups that your hunters, you know, I'm from New York originally. That's all New York has is, is hunters and jumpers but we don't have them anymore around where we are. Like I'm down in Georgia and there's not many hunters down here. So it's hard for those people to get the points. But I do think that qualifying is important because that keeps the level, the prestige of the world show. And if not, to me, it's just, it's another horse show. And I'm not saying that, you know, I feel that way about the Congress, but the Congress numbers are enormous. And there's people that I go at the Congress and I, I've been doing this a little while. I feel like I know a decent amount of people. I went to the Congress and I didn't know half the people that were there. I'm like, who are these people? Where did they come from? It was awesome to see the growth, but that just goes to show you that all of those people potentially could be shown at the world show if maybe they could afford to be there because AQHA decides how they can restructure their fees or they lower the amount of qualifying points. But the fact that there was a pay-in to get to the world show, you know, I did the math, you know, I'm a numbers person. It was cheaper to pay to go to the world show than actually qualify to go to the world show, if you actually thought about it. And I, I said to Clint and I said to Keith, I'm like, maybe this year I'm just going to slap down a $5,000 check and I ain't showing all year. I'm going to save myself thousands and thousands of dollars. And the fact that that actually was cheaper for you to just pay AQHA to be there than having to haul and qualify. I mean, I'm not going to do that. You need practice. I'm just, I'm joking partially, but it's mind blowing that that actually is a cheaper option than it would be to qualify to go there. Right. And I think their qualifying option with those shows provides a problem because when you look at Florida, that's only two shows and we show, you know, four times in each event there. So that's what makes it hard for the classes that are offered a lot, like the ranch trail and ranch rail and things like that. 
is where you could fall all year and there not be hardly anybody in your classes to even get your points, but there's not even enough shows that hold the classes that you can qualify by the show qualifying. So in the fees in general for the world show, how do you think AQHA could improve the fees given the fact that they still have bills, you know, that they have to pay and cover? So where do you stand on as far as what you're getting your money's worth, the qualifying fee, the jackpot fees, all of that? I personally don't know if I've seen the benefit to the jackpot piece of it. And for me, at least, I think it's more on transparency. Where does that jackpot actually go? Because for each class, it's different. If you pay out and you make the finals, I think that you should get payback in some capacity for it. I made the finals in both of my events. I was 14th and one because I almost fell down. So to Meg's point before, you can have a great pattern and then completely fall apart at the end. That was me this year in the showmanship. But, you know, and then I was seventh in the horsemanship. And I want to say I got a payout in the showmanship and not the horsemanship or vice versa. But they couldn't really explain why. And I think that if you have the transparency and you understand where the payouts are coming from, you can understand if you want to contribute to that or not. But I did find it really interesting because I think, was it last year that was the first year with the jackpot? I believe you're correct. Yes. The communication on it, either I missed something or the communication was slightly lacking on it. It's possible that it was the first one. It was unclear to me that you had to pay in order to get a payout. When I was there in 2015, 2016, I won classes in both years and I got the payout. And then when I was third in the level two horsemanship in 2020, I got a payout as well. And so when they implemented the jackpot in 2021, I thought it was just extra added money and decided not to do it, decided to do it in 2022. And because it's very hard to understand, it's frustrating to see payouts in one, not in another, if if you make the finals, and then just understanding where it's going and how it's being allocated. So I think there could be more transparency. I don't have a problem paying the entry fee. You know, I know that we're going to, it's, it's the world show. There's a lot of expense. There's a lot of fixed costs. If you want to drive down costs, you truly have to improve the numbers, increase the numbers. But If you're going to have a jackpot or added money, truly understand how you're going to get paid out for that and what it's going to mean for the exhibitor. Right. Because I think off the top of my head, it's like with a level three class and paying the jackpot, it's like $675. It's almost $700 a class. And that to me is just insane. Like you said, you know, yeah, you might. I think it was $675, Alexa, because I think it's $375. And then, oh, wait, is it $300 for the jackpot or $350? I thought it was $300. Regardless. 300 because then you go in and you look at like so for the stakes class because the until this year the the working western rail wasn't technically an aqha approved class that they had them as a stakes class that class is only 250 dollars, and that is i think a 80 some percent payout i mean i was 10th and still made almost 600 dollars. so there's got to be a way that they work it around that you're not having to pay because i think that is a big deal you know you want to go out there and Maybe you say you're not, you know, maybe the most competitive person that you're scared that you don't have a chance. But like you guys said, in the pattern classes, it can be anybody's day and you go out and win it. You know, you want to know that you're going to get something back out of that and not have to pay, you know, almost $700 to get it. I pulled my account of what I paid to go to the world show and entry fees. And my entry fees were $3,100, $3,188. Stall was $625. I was fortunate enough to win the level three amateur showmanship last year, and I received $1,100 to win. 
So I think that going to the world show knowing, and I did go to the world show knowing I didn't do any NSBA class. I didn't pay in anything extra. I did nothing extra. I just went there thinking to myself, I'm not going to make any money here anyway. I'm going to hopefully get my name called. Really, that's why I go there. Honestly, Congress, my three-year-old was reserved in the open and she made like $3,100. So some shows, you know, you're going to make money. Congress, NSBA being one of them, the world show to me, knowing going into it, I wasn't going to make any money anyway. And I couldn't care less about the $1,100. That made nothing to me. I'm glad that I got that, but I was more concerned that I would get my name called out there than I was to, to win any money. And I think if AQHA wants that to be what people think about the AQHA world show, that they're not going to win any money there, and it's just to get their name called, then they're doing the right thing. But if they want to actually grow it with like financial incentive to go there, to Patty's point, to y'all's point, the, the jackpot and everything else has to work itself out because you can't win a level three class and win a thousand bucks when you yeah. paid 3,100 bucks to be there. The math doesn't work. So on your point, Meg, you know, you're talking about the money aspect. I mean, look at the NSBA world. That is a perfect representation. I love their system, you know, and I don't show the color classes because it's more expensive to go rather than just pay the $150 fee to show my ranch horse in the color amateur classes at the NSBA world. And I paid for I think three class, I think it's 150 a class plus the entry fee. And I covered all of my fees. I made $5,000 for the NSBA world. That is a format that I think AQHA needs to look into because if you're looking at how many people go to the NSBA world, I mean, if you compare those numbers from what we have at the world show to that, I mean, you know, we had, well, I think 80 in the amateur horsemanship where we ended up with maybe 40 at the AQHA world. I think that is where they really need to look at because I know the Tulsa facility is not cheap either. You know, it's not like it's a cheaper, a much cheaper facility that they don't have expense putting that show on. Well, and the same point of the judges, right? I know that the judges are very expensive. So if you look at your fixed costs and the facility and the judges and so forth, there, there's got to be some insight that can be shared there and, and some, some input that AQHA should be able to leverage. Why do you guys feel the Congress and the NSBA, you know, specifically are giant shows and seem to be growing still, and yet the AQHA World Show seems to be struggling so much? I think that's the major thing. I mean, if you're looking at Congress entry fees, um, I work for the Congress doing data entry for all of their entries, so I know most of those fees. I don't know much about the maturity fees. Meg might have an insight to that, but your amateur classes are only 75 bucks a pop. So, I mean, if you're, if you're adding in your NSBA, if you want to show both, that's only $150. And like at the NSBA world, I think maybe it's $175 for a class or $150. And then if you don't qualify, you can only, you could pay another $150. So it's, it's $300, but your money coming back to you, even if you're eighth. I mean, I was eighth in the color amateur showmanship or the horsemanship out of maybe 30 possibly and still made $700. So I paid for my entry fee back with a very limited amount of entries. But I think people with this economy and with fuel prices being so expensive and those of us having to travel far, they have to look at what they're gonna get out of it. You know, at the Congress, it you do have that chance as a trophy and your prices are less. So if you have to make a decision on how much time you can take off of work and where you can spend your money and you have to choose between the world show and the Congress, I think the Congress is winning because the cost is less 
and it's still as big, not maybe as big as a world championship, but still a big prestigious event. And the time too, I think, Alexa, because, you know, at the Congress, you do your prelims and your finals in the same day. Not saying that I would ever want to do that at the world show because they're different patterns. But I do think that the the time does play into that. You know, same at NSBA. NSBA in Congress, you do, it's basically run as one class. So you don't have a different pattern. So that's just naturally going to change. But cost is definitely a, a big factor of that. And possibly, Patty, you might be right. You know, maybe in those classes that say have less than 30, I mean, the amateur application only had 25 in it. Maybe they look at making that only a finals pattern. You know, that would cut down another day. I mean, they did it for the, the, the hunter hack. I mean, we had 19, but they didn't see a point in us jumping two fences for four less people. That's an excellent idea. I think it comes down to two chasing points versus chasing money. I think the last time I was on with you girls in the podcast, we talked about, you know, what's more important nowadays. What do people care more about to go win money or to go win a point? People are money focused and the fraturity classes, Congress has so many fraturity classes, hunter under saddle, pleasure, reigning. I mean, the list goes on. There's so many fraturity opportunities. Trainers are going to make more as open exhibitors and the horse as horse owners, the horses are going to make more. I think also that has something to do with it. The fact that NSBA and Congress are very fraturity driven and that's where the money is. And people nowadays are going, I mean, we see it all over Facebook. People talk about, do you go for the money or do you go for the points? Most people nowadays are like, oh, all well and good to, you know, win a trophy, but I'd rather win money. And that's kind of what the numbers seem to agree with. Preston, here's a question for you as kind of the new guy, I guess, to the AQHA, you know, breed show world. Do you feel the world show is targeted towards the elite only? I absolutely 100% do. And I'm not saying necessarily the elite only, but I mean, had we not had our horses with who we had our horses with, I, I probably would not have gone to the world show. I don't feel like it's targeted, but I feel like most of the common people know, obviously we have a lot of friends that show and stuff. There's no point. And they say it, there's no point in us going all the way down there, spending all that money to compete when you know the the top five horses that are there. And I mean, Hannah, with that little uh, radical signs are good horse, I'm going to throw in a little burp for him there. I mean, she did really, really well on it. I mean, she put, you know, almost 40 points in the open on him by herself and then another 25 or 28 in the amateur stuff. And she won everywhere she went. We went to the NSBA world and we got our eyes opened up like, hey, this is a whole different ball game down here. These people mean business. And so we had to kind of come back and re-script and rewrite. And, and we end up switching trainers up and, and going with another trainer. And, you know, he felt like he was good enough to go. But it, even then it was, you know, had the people that showed up in her amateur class actually showed up and not scratched. She wouldn't have won a globe. There's no way she would have. And it's not that her horse isn't good. And it's not that she she doesn't ride good, but just uh, strictly based on politics. And I mean, I'm not trying to be that person, but I kind of will be that person. Um, I feel like that's why a lot of these people just say, nah, I'm not going to go. You know, what's the point? I've been beat by them all summer long. Why, why do I want to go drive 15 hours or drive across the country and spend three times the amount of money to win no money and get my butt kicked by the same people that, that win everything we go to. And I mean, that's tough. And I'm not knocking the people that win. 
they deserve to win most of the time. But it's really hard for common citizens to, to justify spending eight or $10,000 to go, no, you're not even going to get your name called, regardless if there's only seven in the class. That's tough. So for the rest of you gals that are, you know, pretty frequent all around competitors and show all over country and are fairly well known, how do you balance making it a friendly show to new people in, you know, the quarter horse show world and whatnot, but still keeping the prestige of winning that world title or placing in the top three? Like, you know, you don't want to give participation awards out at the world show level to everybody, I'm sure. So where's that line drawn and how do you make it more friendly to just regular AQHA people? I'm a newer, I guess I'm not a newer, newer amateur now. I'm getting old, dang. But I'm one of the newer (laughs) amateurs and have shown against Meg and Patty for the last four years and and they're tough competitors. And there are multiple amateurs that have been showing for a long time that I'll tell you when I went youth, I did not want to show. I was like, no, take me back. I'm good. I don't want to jump into the deep end of the pool. But like Meg said earlier, there is a point that, you know, like Meg won the world show. I've won the world show. Patty's won titles before that we can go fall off or go off pattern. Like Patty said, she tripped the world show in the finals this year. It happens to everyone. No one is invincible, no matter how many world titles or, you know, trophies that you have won. And I think that's a point we need to make to new people. Yes, we do well a lot of the times. We are very good partners with the horses that we have. We've busted our butt to be good, to be competitive in the industry. But that doesn't mean that we can't be knocked down a peg or taken out by the little guys. You know, the horse industry is such a growing sport because of that aspect. You know, it's not based on, you know, your athletic, but it is based on athletic ability, but not like, you know, swimming or track that no matter how hard you practice, you're not going to be better than the person that runs faster. The horse industry can be very interesting because if you put more hard work and time into it, it doesn't matter, you know, where you came from, what horse you ride, you can be a winner without having to show every weekend. And I think that that point needs to be made to a lot of people. I was thinking about this a lot because I just came from Cloverdale and and they had decent numbers, especially for January. And it was really great to see how big the novice classes were and how much fun this horse show was. We had a trainer challenge on Friday night, you know, getting a lot of people around, having a good time, focused on more than just getting points or winning a class or getting your circuit title. And I think if you really want to make the world show more than just those elite, you got to focus back on your weekend shows. You have to get new people into this industry. You have to be novice friendly a novice again in for the first time in my life in a really long time. I've started the trail in the Western riding and it is, I forgot what it's like to be novice, right? And it's, it's very intimidating to be a novice when you're a part of this industry. I can't imagine going back to being a novice when I'm not a part of this industry. And I think that the more welcoming we can be at the weekend shows, the more that we can improve those level one numbers, the more that we can make this really a family friendly hobby, you know, having fun events, doing doing things that bring people together. That's how you get a truly different atmosphere from the ground up and how you bring people wanting to go to the world show and wanting to participate in that. Because if they're going to the weekend shows and they're not having fun, what makes them think that they're going to go to the world show and have fun? And I think, you know, 
Bill, Charles, and John Barry um, really hit the nail on the head with everything when they did their Back to Barian show. And, you know, it was small, but, I mean, those classes, I mean, Hannah won more money there than she did at the World Show. And you know what I mean? So it's possible to, and I I go to money, and I, I can't help myself because, like, the last time I was at Oklahoma City for the U.S. Finals, you know, I won a pocket full of money a brand new pickup truck, and it cost me $600. They gave me my stall for free with betting, with betting in it for free, (laughs) right? You know what I mean? That's how, you know, some of these other associations are drawing people in. And and I think, you know, Gil and John and and Charles, they were betting everybody's stall up at at Berrien. You know, yeah, you still had to pay for it, but you got there and it was betted. You know, I mean, those, those little things, you know, Cookouts, Ludington is another prime example. I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but it's a blast. I mean, a, an amazing horse show over the 4th of July. They have games and activities and just bonding time so you can meet people, you can uh, interact. You know, it's not this clicky, oh, well, here's this barn, here's this barn, here's this barn, and everybody just stays in their own alleyway. You know, everybody's out riding around, racing go-kart or golf carts and, you know, throwing beanbags or whatever. But I definitely agree if they want to do that, like make it make it seem fun. Don't make it seem so intimidating. I mean, it's intimidating, especially for people that haven't ever been in the limelight before. You know, the excitement to bring people together. Everyone's seen The Last Cowboy, you know, and, and obviously Rainy has gotten really big after that series, which is pretty fun to see. But these draw parties that NRHA does, maybe other associations do them, too, but I just happen to see it because of that show. But, you know, the draw parties bring so many people together and do something fun and procedures for the finalists, you know, make, make it have people come together, get to know one another. And, you know, rather than, you know, to your point, Preston, that you have these people over here and these people over here and they never interact or see each other, get people that want to come up and say hi to each other. And if it's somebody's first world show, maybe they'll get to meet somebody that they haven't met before. And I think so many times, you know, some of these people go in with with new ideas and, and new philosophies and hey could we try this and everybody is so this is the way we've done it for 65 years we're not this is this is all that matters like this is how it has to be and I, I just don't think it does I don't think it does because I know I've spent 50 times the amount of money I ever spent team roping in this pleasure stuff and I won you know in one year in the team rope and I won you know close to two hundred thousand dollars plus a brand new pickup truck, you know? And my entry fees are, you know, $55 a run. And you got your stalls vetted. <laughs> and I got my stalls vetted for free. So, Patty's point is really good because being a novice, when I started showing the fence stuff, it was really scary, especially as she made the point as being in the industry already, coming from a background of being competitive in the all-around industry and then going there, it had that feeling of people just being like, oh, she's got to be automatically good at it. And for a while, I really struggled showing the event because I had that thought in mind. But they're so excited to see someone try their event and enjoy it and learn to love it that I think that if we welcomed people like that into our industry all the time, that it would make people want to be here. Because I truthfully love doing the hunters because it doesn't matter if you you know fall off or miss or whatever, they'll clap for you. They think it's great. You know, everybody's like, yay, no one died. <laughs> like, it becomes fun because 
they're happy to see each person do well, even if you're beating them. They just want to see you enjoy your horse and enjoy the I just want to say a little something about the question about should the world show be for the elite? The world show should be for the elite, the elite exhibitors, the best ones to qualify to be there, not from an elite financial situation. And that's the problem. Every single person who was at the world show, and I'm looking at Patty and I'm looking at Alexa and everyone else that I call friends, we would welcome and love new blood and new people. And we would be so extremely excited to see new people show up in the classes to get bigger and see people interested, walk down the aisle, pet our horses, but we don't. And the reason why we don't is because the elite has become financial. It's it's a financial thing now. People can't afford to be there. So therefore we're not getting the novice people. We're not throwing exhibitor parties because there's nobody there. So all of these wonderful things, all these great ideas, exhibitor parties, bed the stalls, there's not one person that showed at the last year's world show that wouldn't have loved to see more novice people there to show. We love that. We want the industry to grow. We love the animals. The problem is they can't get in. They can't afford to get in. And when they do get in and realize how expensive it is, they turn right around and they walk away. And that is, that's the biggest problem with it has nothing to do with not us wanting not novice. We want novice. We want to throw exhibitor parties. We want to have fun. We want everyone to have a good time, but it's getting very, very hard to do that because once they get excited and they get in and they go to Brent Maxwell and they take a lesson and they're excited and Brent says, okay, well, here's the cost to go. And Brent's not making up the cost. I mean, he's just showing them what the numbers is. The clients are like, I'm sorry, Brent, we can't afford to do that. And then out goes the client. Right. It takes an effect on our industry too, when that happens. And it's making it harder for us to like the point as, you know, we were talking earlier off camera about the amateur rule. It makes it harder for new people to want to even come take lessons because they hear the buzz about how much it takes to go and show that they're like, well, this, this is dumb. Let's not even pay the money to go get interested in this and want to actually do it and not have the financial stability or even the means to even go to a weekend show. You know, Jenna, you had a, a question in there for us, a thought-provoking question around, do you think the vendors and sponsors get out of the sponsorships, the, the, the dollars that they pay to really be a part of the show? And as I was thinking about it and thinking about shows like the NSBA World Show, and the Congress, you know, they've truly made it a spectator event. Obviously, it's a horse show and sometimes a circus, but it is a spectator event, right? And so they drive so many people to visit those vendors, to see those signs. You see all the signs hanging in the Celeste. You know, they truly get the recognition and and the name brand that they've paid for. And I don't know, because no one's ever told me, but I can't imagine that the, the vendors and sponsors get that out of the world show. I think that if you make it more of a spectator event, I think that it's going to help in a number of ways. I think that you're going to get more sponsors. I think that you're going to get more vendors. And I think it's going to drive more buzz around being there and around really, how do I get here? How do I get to the world show? Because they're there. They can see it. They're excited. I know the first time I went to the Congress and I I wasn't competing, I got to experience what the Congress was. I wanted to do everything I could to get there because I was there and I could see it and I could feel the energy. I think that if we can make it more of a spectator event, that we can give people experiencing it more, it's going to be beneficial in a number of ways. 
And I think the best thing that AQHA did from a spectator perspective is that they did away with the lanyards that you had to wear into the stands. It's pretty difficult to make it a spectator event if you have to pay $45 or $55, whatever it was, for that lanyard to get up into the stands. Now people can go and they can watch if they want, but how do we get them there? And they would let you in even if you were completely dressed. Oh my gosh, there was one time I forgot my lanyard. It was for the finals of the showmanship and I forgot my lanyard back at the stalls and I had to run back and get it just so I could see the first go. And I was dying when I came back, not that there wasn't enough running in the pattern already, but yes, I was fully dressed with my number on and they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> yeah, I'll go back to my youth days. So I, for those that have, obviously we've been there, but for anyone that listens to this that has been to the world show outside of the super barn across where the parking lot is where in um, 2020 they had the make the makeup pen that was out there on the concrete where they made that building right there used to be full of vendors and i mean it was packed there was so i mean aisles and aisles about like the congress that was there and kind of the same thing got to be at the youth world where it got to be so expensive my last year's of youth and that number dwindled and dwindled to the point that they moved it over into the concourse, which, like I said, I've, I was at the World Show for 27 days. And I will admit that I think I walked through the concourse twice. Because unless you're looking for the bathroom, and no offense to the vendors, you never go down there. Unless you have a purpose to go, you know, buy videos or go talk to the AQHA reps at the booth, th- there's no purpose to walk down there. And if, you know, they don't really make any announcements or anything to go down there and see those guys. And I think that really hurts. I think another thing that they need to think about is that they put those vendors, which is a prime spot because people walk in between, they put those vendors in that barn three arena, which I feel like we need to be utilizing as exhibitors. Because I know at the youth world, we would always use that as the lunging pen. And I will tell you, you know, when you get there early and there's nowhere to go ride, it's freezing outside or torrential downpouring or Oklahoma tornadoes are going off or whatever. There's only the outdoor uncovered. And I know the one day, Patty, I think you were still there when it was snowing. And that was the only place we had to go ride unless you wanted to wait until midnight and hope to God that not everyone else decided to ride at the same time. Yep. I had a point about barn three as well. (laughs) (laughs) That needs to be for the exhibitors. It it really would make it a better experience just all around. I know the footing in there was never great before, but it was, you know, you're able to go in and get lunged at least and have a better spot to, you know, if you're in those other barns to not have to go outside and open those doors. I mean, it gets cold in there when it's cold outside and people are opening those doors, get those horses in and out. It's impossible to keep up and it's, uh, will it solve it? Probably not, but will it help? Maybe. So AKHA tried, I think, tried to hear some concerns and comments this year with they did a town hall meeting at the world show did any of you go and what was your take from that i did go i felt like i am a very avid person of aqha and i want to help them as much as possible but my truthful and honest opinion was that they were hearing the problems that people were bringing up but they weren't listening it felt like there was always an excuse about where the money went that they couldn't just give us a straightforward answer If it wasn't a positive answer, I would have rather them just told the straight truth of we have to do this to make money. And I think it would have made all of us a little easier, but it made us feel like we were just getting another 
wraparound answer, like, like Patty had said, there has to be a way for us to know where the money's going. And several sponsors that were there to the, the point of the last question of those sponsors and vendors getting their money's worth out of those sponsorships, there was a sponsor that asked where her money went because she said she didn't feel as though it was going where she was told it was going. Well, and I think, you know, I'm going to step in on that. I was there for a little part of it. And then I had a dinner reservation because I like to eat. But Charlie stood up right in the beginning and, and I mean, summed it up as well as anybody, if not the best I've ever heard. And he says, you have the barrel racers that have their own association, the rainers, the cutters, the ranch riders, all these people have their own association now. Why? Because they can go. You know, Charlie said, we can go to Vegas and watch our horses run at the NFR and know that we are going to make a pile load of money. And again, I'm back to the money thing, but it's hard not to when you look at, you know, you can, I can go to a weekend jackpot around here and go to a team rope and win first or second place and bring home six, seven, eight hundred dollars. I mean, you can't do that at the world show. Like their head is so wrapped around this is the world show. You should just feel honored to be here. But I bring in a perspective of, again, you know, you should be able to go and at least cover your expenses because I'm telling you, out of everybody except for maybe the thoroughbreds and the rainers and the cutters, right? As far as your guys' outfits, your saddles, your horses, your everything, you're spending 10 times what any of the rest of them are spending. You know what I mean? Not including the horse, right? And I know there's some very expensive barrel horses, and I'm not ignorant to that, but we're spending, you know, 150 or 175,000 on the low end for a really nice horse, you know, 25,000 on a saddle, 2,000 on a head stall, 5,000 on an outfit. You know what I mean? And it's just like, here's your ribbon. Have a good day. And I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, that ribbon's going to pay my bills, right? I do love my coworkers who are like, so what do you compete for? I'm like, basically bragging rights. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got a really cool, really cool globe over there that I do love. And I think that's a an honor. And I'm I'm thankful that we we got one and I'm excited about it. And it made me feel very, very good. But it's to speak to the sponsor point too. You know, and I think everybody there has the same question of, you know, we're paying twenty five hundred dollars to be in this this row of barn. And there's how many of those people that paid that twenty five hundred dollars. I know when people come and ask me to sponsor something, like my money is going to a class. My money's not going to pay pay debts. My money's not going to pay judges' bills. My money's not going. That's not what somebody that sponsors stuff goes for. Like if I'm going to throw money down, I want to see my money go in the pockets of the people that are making it possible for this whole thing to be happening. And it's not your trainers that are the reason that the world show goes on. I hate to break that to anybody, you know, because without customers, those trainers have no one. I mean, they're not going to take out of their own pocket and go get a sponsorship and go up there and, and show for their own horses for fun. And I mean, I know there's probably a few that do, but I think in reality is the AQHA and, and the association as a whole needs to look at where is the money coming from? And it's, yes, the trainers are bringing these people to the table, but in reality, it's the amateurs, the non-pros, and all these people that are the only reason the AQHA is held together, or the pleasure part of the AQHA is held together. It's the only reason. 
I mean, maybe I'm wrong and and I'd love to hear somebody tell me that I am, but I don't think that I am. That went back to our point earlier of as an association, yes, bringing in new members is, is amazing and they need to look at that, but they also need to make it so that their current members are wanting to go out and tell people about the association. Like, oh yeah, I'm part of this. This is what I got from it. This is what we get. It's so much fun. And I think that's that's where the disconnect is happening. So I think kind of on that note, as we begin to wrap up here, because we've taken enough of y'all's time today, which is, I think this has been a fantastic discussion, but on a positive note, what are ideas or suggestions you have as ways AQHA could move forward or improve it going forward, or just, you know, give one thought to that of what's something constructive and positive going forward that would change maybe the narrative a little bit? I'm going to jump in quick and say, everybody needs to trust the process. I think they've made some huge strides in upper management and executives in the AQHA. And I truthfully believe that there are certain people in that association right now that are trying to hear people out. And it's going to take open eyes and open ears. But I think if we trust the process, we'll see some great changes because I know a few other associations that have been under the same leadership that we have now have have had uh, extreme success and and have really really turned their associations around. We got to give him a chance, and I think that's Carl. I mean, we have to give him a chance and let him do what he's he's been hired to do. And that's what I'll say. Yeah, my suggestion would be, or my input would be, Preston, I agree with you a thousand percent. I think that we've got some really eager, really smart people in there who actually do want to listen. I don't think that we should stop sharing our thoughts and our ideas and help out as much as we can. I'm sure everybody sees it. Everyone is quick to go to social media and point out the flaws and point out where it's wrong or point out how they're negatively impacted by things. But what you don't see is a lot of help or suggestions or the ways that people are trying to really help them make a difference. And if we all focus on it, because we all love this, And everyone on this podcast loves the world show. I love the world show. Yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's exhausting. It's why I work the other 11 months out of the year so I can go do it. And is that going to change? Likely not. I hope not, right? And I want to continue to to go. It's a very prestigious show that I had dreamed my whole life to be a part of and was not able to be a part of it until 2015, so I'm really glad that I'm able to, to, to do it and have been doing it on an annual basis. But rather than just going to social media or getting on the, the, the comment train of getting stuff in there, try to help out. Try to really be a part of the change and the difference. And, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of people who really do want to write this ship. And I think that we'll get there and they need support and they need help and they need input. And uh, so be a part of the, the solution, not the problem. I feel that AQHA needs to start locally with the weekend horse shows. That's where they're going to see the biggest difference at the world show, in my opinion, offering more novice shows, more shows that have drastic fee deductions for the novice exhibitors during those shows, have local trainers come and give clinics based off of their time to help them learn and become excited to go to more horse shows. But in order to grow and in order for the world show to get back to where it was as far as the amount of individuals being there, the excitement being there and not feeling like you're you know, being drugged behind a car the whole time you're there, I do feel like it has to come down to the local organizations 
really promoting more novice friendly, cost effective, growth oriented type shows to get more people interested, to buy the horse, to get involved. And hopefully that's a trickle down effect. I think it has to start locally for that to happen. Yeah, I think AQHA needs to look back and remember why this association was started and why it continues to draw people in and why we continue to love the sport and the horses is that 95% of the people that make this association go around do it for fun. You know, all of us sitting on this call, we do it as a hobby. You know, my family obviously does it as a profession, but ultimately we stick around and work those late hours. And like Patty said, work, you know, 11 months out of the year to be able to go to the world show. We do that because we love the sport and we want to see it succeed and continue to grow and be well on its way long after we stop showing. You know, I was cleaning my house the other day and, and found a video of the first World Show trophy I ever won and comparing it to, I was fortunate this year to win another one, comparing it to the feeling that I had the first time that I picked up that trophy, it hasn't changed. You know, I was still as nerve racked and crying as I was the first day that I ever walked into the Jim Norrick Arena. And it was kind of interesting as a youth to leave and feel like that chapter closed and then come in as an amateur and walk down that same gateway of champions. And for anybody that's never felt that feeling, it is insane. I know Meg and Patty, Ian Preston can, can say that just stepping under those lights is a feeling that you will never forget and that you can't replicate anywhere. So I think as an association, we need to group together and try to find the solution instead of adding to the problem. I just have to say, or I'd be remiss to not do this. I'm reminded from somebody within AQHA, I have a message, so I want to make sure I get it in, that if anybody has tangible tangible ideas for improvement, most of the time they need to be submitted with a rule change proposal form if they want to be reviewed by committees at convention. And they said it also helps for people to attend convention as well as to help answer any question that the committees have about the proposals and also consider the cost of whatever these ideas are. So if they're open, according to them, to hearing new ideas and suggestions, but you do have to consider the whole, you know, proposal, which includes financing too. So, you know, want to include all perspectives on everything with that. And that's kind of all I had, Liz. Do you have any closing thoughts? Otherwise we'll get wrap up thoughts from everybody as we get done today. I do have one final question and I think a few of you answered it, but are you planning on trying to qualify for the 2023 world show this year? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have some family things that are on our goal list this year to accomplish. So if I get to the world show this year, it'll be awesome. And if not, we'll see you in 2024. Preston, what about you? Yeah, I think we're yeah. going to try. I mean, cool. we're kind of in a weird spot. Our horse is retired to the breeding barn now. So don't really have a horse, but we're working on that too. So <laughs> there's always a horse to buy somewhere. Exactly. Uh, of course. <laughs> Go win ribbons on. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, thank you everybody for your time. I think this was a great discussion and hopefully provides a lot of insight to people. Does anybody have any last closing thoughts or anything they want to say as we wrap up here today? Or your local associations. <laughs> Amen. I mean, it's going to take support from every person in this association instead of just complaints, complaints, solutions. And every one of us talked about that with our little closing blurb there. But I just want to say it again, like 
don't come with the problem, come with the solution. And, and people are a lot more receptive to that. I know I am in my own business. You know, I mean, I'm way more receptive if somebody says, hey, this is the problem, but I think we could do this. And I think, I think we'll get somewhere. And this is exciting. And I'd love to do it again, you know, a few months from now, if we see some changes, because I think there are going to be some good changes. I really do. Yeah, I think we're all too quick to jump on social media and complain, but there's very few people that are actually willing to provide constructive criticism and do something about it or provide ideas and solutions. So that's something we all Mm -hmm. need to keep in mind with all of our current industry problems. You know, it's not just an AQHA problem. No, not at all. (laughs) All righty. Thank you guys for your time. Thanks you as well. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us. It was great. Thanks, girls. Have a great night. Bye. All right, that'll be your class. Bring them in and line them up.